As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I'm delighted because in the studio this week, I am joined by the very talented Alison Rudd. We have, making his debut, Mr. Sam Monnery. You'll get to know him, you'll love him. And down the line from Estonia, it's Matt Dickinson. England and Estonia, I guess the capsule account here, Dicko, was... uh, a very competent performance, and England could have scored far more against 10 men. First half, I thought, was um, was really decent, to be honest. I thought England passed the ball fast. I thought uh, Wilshire, Henderson in particular, um, linked well. They drove the play forward well, and it just needed the couple of finishes that would have made it um, you know, made it a very, very good performance. And then they just got a bit frustrated in the second half, lost the shape a bit, and actually sort of found it against 10 men found themselves getting sort of a bit bogged down but um you know say I, I think certainly looking at the first half of it there was you know signs of progress Alison we, we see this all the time right teams playing against 10 men and they find it more difficult yeah although I mean Matt you were there I wasn't there but it didn't look to me like it made a huge amount of difference to the way Estonia played I think if you were just sort of taking snapshots of the game you wouldn't really be able to identify the moments when they were down to 10 men and the moments when they were not. There were probably just as many of their attacks as there would have been had they had the full 11 on the pitch. I didn't I didn't really get an overwhelming sense that, well, what a shame, England didn't manage to score in the first half and now it's really tough because they're up against 10 men. But did it did to the opposition, did it make a huge amount of difference to their well, ambition? It did. I mean, I, no, I think England already slightly lost their, their way, their purpose bef- before the, the dismissal. I think there was already a bit of frustration coming in. Lalana wasn't playing great. I'm sure we'll move on to the Sterling debate. But yeah, he, wa- he wasn't having a great time, wasn't unlocking much. Yeah, they just didn't, they seemed to lose a bit of the zip. I mean, they played with such um, energy in, in the first half, not just in their own passing, but in trying to close down and win the ball high up that um, they just seem to drop seem to drop off a bit uh, and that's that did happen before the, the dismissal certainly Sam I'm, I'm I'm curious obviously in in the internationals before he played I guess some, some his version of the diamond with Sterling behind two strikers and obviously I guess his thinking must be that's Sterling's role Sterling's not there he plays Lalana there who doesn't really play that position for Liverpool and didn't really play it at Southampton either. Does this make sense? Because the the, the diamond kind of means that you kind of need Delph in there as well. And and 
Yeah, I mean, it did look for sort of long periods of the, the the second half that we were trying to play through the middle too much. It was sort of persisting with the, the trying to pick our way through seven defenders. It just seemed like they were they set out with the objective to try and sort of pass their way through with quick passing. But there comes a point when you have to say that it's getting too congested in here, let's work it wide. But again, it was one of those games where you, you want to see Hodgson sort of change something mid-game. And you know, fortunately, he, could, he sort of persisted with it and it, it, it worked. Everyone accepts they're going to get through to, to the Euros. That's not really an issue. So what, what is the point? What, what, does, what does Hodgson try and achieve? Does he abandon the sort of football he might be thinking of playing when it comes to more competitive games mm. or just to get through the bunching and the negativity of a team way down the, the league table or does he think well I want to practice I don't get the England players together very often I want us to practice what what I think we're going to be doing long term for the to, to, to win proper, good... proper football matches and, and that's what seemed to me like what he was doing he was ignoring what was there to say to the England players, ooh, I've got you all together, let's all practice the diamond, uh, irrelevant uh, w- w- what we're up against. Well, I think it's a good question, as you say, you know, do, do they sort of worry about the here and now or are they plotting? And I think there's a bit of both. I mean, I think ultimately there is a bit of exploration about the whole process because, A, the, t- the team and the squad has changed pretty, pretty radically. I mean, the most radically, you know, for, for 10, 20 years, just in terms of natural evolution of of retirements of of Gerard and Lampard and others the team is pretty uh, sort of astonishingly young by England and international standards and then you know Wilshire at the base of a diamond I mean they're you know this is an exploration for them it has shown sort of slightly iffy signs against Switzerland slightly more promising signs yesterday but they you know you speak to the coaches they don't know 100% themselves whether a it works all the time b can it work against you know if you're playing against an italy or a germany do you need you know to have you know someone more defensive minded in that role or can you get away with having henderson and delf alongside to sort of help out in that regard so that you know it is a journey of exploration all the time and i think as long as as long as they are exploring in a sort of a coherent and intelligent way then then um, yeah, these are, these shouldn't be wasted games, even when they can turn frustrating like yesterday. But it would be jolly useful when you do play Germany or Italy or France to to know that it's not brand new that you the play, it, you've just sort of answered it, Matt. If if, the, if this is a brand new team, a young team, they're probably going to stay together. You can no, you can, you can bank on them being the players in two years' time. So he, no, may, he may as well play them where he thinks he's going to play them all. When you do play a Germany and Italy or France, sweet. Now, uh, Which we will. <laughs> one thing that I, that, I find, uh, um, that, that I find remarkable, though, I mean, on, on the back of what you guys were saying, was looking at this 11, you could, I mean, Callum Chambers obviously played a lot of fullback at Southampton, but Wenger seems to think of him as a, as a central defender now, and certainly the indication is that that's kind of where his future is. Jack Wilshire does not play the base of the diamond at club level when, when he does get on the pitch. Adam Lallana does not play the top of the diamond when he gets on the pitch. Well, I don't think, Adam, I don't think John, just on that, I don't think... I mean, Liverpool obviously play different formations as Southampton. I mean, I saw him in probably two or three different roles for Southampton, but I don't think top of the um, top of the diamond is sort of so unusual for him. I mean, he played off... I saw him a lot at Southampton as a sort of second auxiliary strike, you know... Sort right, of no, 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 but, but that was last whole year. Player. That, that was last year. I'm saying now... I mean, we don't know what he's going to do, but we assume if they do, if he does play some formation which contemplates a guy in the hole, it's going to be Sterling and not him, right? At Liverpool. 
Indeed, but I, you know, all I'm it's a sort of quib, a quibble point, but I just okay. don't think I don't think Adam Lallana should look at a, a place at the top of the diamond and think, ooh, that's you know that's no, no, no. I, I, out of my comfort zone. You know, I take your point, but Danny Welbeck obviously plays on his own up front for for Arsenal, and Wayne Rooney plays with two strikers. Well, will play, might play when he when he comes back from suspension. I guess what I'm driving at is one of the accusations. Those, those of us who are from the continent have a sort of English players is that they're not very clever tactically and they kind of only mm. do one thing over and over again. But actually, you look at this and I think there's a fair amount of, of tactical versatility and, and understanding. Has there been a bit of a, a sea change here? There, um, there is. On, I mean, a bizarre, I was speaking to one of the, the, the staff and they're saying that actually the, the, the one of the luxuries of being in a position where they are going to qualify, even if you know half the team drops down and says it's tired, is that they are seeking to challenge the players. That often, you know, you're running into big games and effectively the onus on the England coaches is to sort of, you know, encourage and say, well done, pretty much whatever's happening, because you feel that you're almost sort of, there's a fragility and a vulnerability to it all. But actually, the position England are in, they can challenge the players far more. They can say, well, actually, yes, you know, we are going to work on this for a while. And even if we have setbacks, you know, we, we're going to per- persevere with it. We are, we're going to push you harder. We're going to, and especially with these young players, that actually they can say, I'm told that they're very much encouraging them to speak out more in, in tactical meetings. That's trying to make it a lot more of a sort of two-way process of, you know, what are we building here? You, you tell us what you think can work, how you think we can develop, uh, and then we'll, you know, we'll sort of push you harder. So I think they have tried to change the mood around it and tried to as I say, bring more discussion uh, and bring more, well, say, go back to the word exploration about it and, and sort of push push it on. Uh, and also, like you say, to try and use the fact that players like Lalana, Wilshire, Henderson, Delph should be uh, more tactically versatile. Isn't the secret? Isn't the secret to a happy and successful England team partly that the manager might be able to tap into what players wish they were doing week in week out? And maybe make them feel this is fun coming to England because, you know, I fancy playing on the left. I fancy playing tip of the diamond. I fancy playing part of a two-man strike force. Which certainly should be about learning, shouldn't it? I mean, the fact is that hopefully what should make it fun, I mean, you know, ultimately we can um, be rather realistic about whether they're actually going to win, win the damn thing. But, so that, you know, the end goal is probably not going to be having a trophy in your hand, but it should be about being in a team that's, you know, moving somewhere and learning on the way. You guys aren't letting Sam talk, which I think is very, very unfair. But he didn't here. put his hand up. Sam, well, well, put your hand I, up. I, I appreciate, Dicko, you have more difficulty seeing him from your hotel room in Talon. But, Alison, you have no excuse. Sam. <laughs> no, I mean, what I'd like to see, you know, even from a from a fan's point of view with the England team, is evidence that Hodgson has the confidence to to change an approach during a game and and that that's what that's what's frustrating me with the team at the moment because I can see that he has the players there that he can change the system and I know he wants to persist with something but when you get to 70 minutes and you're sort of grinding your way through you know why not try and open it out why not you know say to people right you know I want you to pull wide I want you to stretch your defense this is the way we want to go we want to stop trying to play through the middle because there comes a point where you have to say right against some teams there are going to be some games where you know we're going to need to win the game and we we're going to have to try something different and i my, my frustration with with Hodgson is that he 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 doesn't he he doesn't have the confidence to or, or maybe the imagination to look at the players he's got and say right i'm going to shift this around i'm going to move these people around and see what happens in the way that 
you know, I mean, I don't want to compare him unfairly, but, you know, Mourinho has oh, to Oh, come that. on. No, no. <laughs> yeah. no, you know what? But like, enough of this. Like, seriously. <laughs> seriously, because, you know what? Like, there are other managers in the world. And also, you know what? How many different formations has Mourinho played? How often have you seen him play three at the back? How often have you seen him play exotic formations? Yeah. Right? There's this Mourinho as like, he's now a tactical genius as well, and he reinvented football. He's a very, very good manager. He's one of the best managers in the world. But yeah. enough of this. You don't have to relate everything back to Mourinho. But change, changing, changing your approach mid, you know, sort of midway through a second half, when, when, when you just seem to be running into a brick wall with your present approach, is not, is not exactly... It's not exactly revolutionary, but... No, like, I think yeah. I agree with you. So, although, to be honest, you know, if Wayne Rooney actually had sort of got his shooting boots on, got, got his shooting anything on, then yeah. um, it's, uh, it should have been a done deal mm. a, lo- a lot earlier. And right, wouldn't, wouldn't Roy just be criticised for allowing 10-man Estonia to make him have to pack back pedal and revert to tactics of old i mean in a way <laughs> he can't me. win can he no well so it's, it's part of the fun of being england manager i'm going to lift a little a bit of a lid here on a media secret and i'm, I'm going to need your help here Dico, to f- fully explain this this past weekend i think it's safe to say that in football was what you might call a very slow weekend because there was no football except for internationals and not too much happened and I'm wondering, is this part of the reason why this Raheem Sterling story is so prominent? I, I am quoting here from Matt Hughes's piece today. Sterling's withdrawal will raise further questions over the influence of Brendan Rodgers. The, the top story in our football section online is Hodgson on defensive over decision to rest Sterling. You beat Estonia 1-0. You've won three of three. Is there some secret backstory behind this? <laughs> there's a, and there's this is one, why the media keeps going on about this? Cause there's one thing we like more than, than the manager slags off referee. It's club v country. It's the, it's the story that has no end. But seriously, um, Rogers is really being criticized for pulling Henderson and uh, that, thingy off at halftime against San Marino. I think it and then comes resting back, Sterling. I mean, are you it kidding comes me? back to this. Well, it taps into a few sort of arguments, and we can, and sure will, debate the rights and wrongs of them. It taps into this particular episode, taps into the, you know, angry constituency out there who say, you know, uh, tired at 19, does this guy doesn't know he's born, you know, he should go work down a coal mine. So you've got that argument, which most idiotic. Mostly, I think, is, is, is idiotic. You've got the argument about who pays his wages. It's Liverpool, not England. Um, we've got the whole argument about, you know, the, the, the order of priorities. And as I've mentioned this morning, I mean, the fact is, you know, he plays two hours in the Capital One Cup for Liverpool. And, you know, plays nine games in 31-odd days, I think it is. And then it's England who end up having to sort of make all the compromises. You've got the, the classic sort of standoff now between um, Hodgson and Rodgers, which was already shall we say, a, a delicate, awkward relationship because Sturridge got injured on international duty. So it taps into, you know, a, f- a few different arguments. But do, do we know that Rodgers is actually annoyed here? I, I mean, Well, no, we don't, we don't know. He's, he's not, I mean, all we know is that there's a... Wouldn't he be a, happy that, that these guys played less minutes than they would otherwise? Well, there's a delicate relationship between the mm-hmm. two, and it, it also comes to the fact that Rodgers, you know, at Liverpool, they, 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 they say that their players... Want two that you know there should be two days of recovery time, which obviously is completely impossible in international football. I mean, you just that can't be done given the the turnaround of games. So, 
there are delicate discussions to be had between between Liverpool and England about how you manage players, and obviously, also it taps into the issue of Raheem Sterling at 19 is you know he's already an absolutely key player for his club and is almost talismanic already for England at 19. So there's that wider debate about hang on a minute, how comes we'd ended up so reliant on a teenager? I think there's a, there's a fair bit of sort of cooling of the water on Hodgson's part between him and him and Rogers over the, the last couple of games because. I mean, we we know that Rogers wasn't happy over over Sturridge and how Sturridge was managed. He has his sort of theory on sort of how sort of quicker players should be used and sort of managed more carefully in training. Uh, so I think Hodgson, there was certainly a nod to towards Rogers with with withdrawing Henderson and Sterling early on against San Marino. And you know, if if Sterling, you know, I mean, Sterling sees that you know they're playing away to Estonia, you've got Lalana in the squad. You know, should he play if he isn't one hundred percent and you know risk injury to himself and being unable to play for his club when there's a you know his club mates fresh and ready beside him? Knowing some from playing sport myself, if if there's somebody in your team or squad who's one hundred percent and you're not. You're actually doing a disservice to the team if you're going to come on and not play at 100. percent So why? Well, so excuse me. I, where, where did you learn this? All right, this yeah, is, this is your debut. You will be razzed here. <laughs> what 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 kind of argument is that? If I have Cristiano Ronaldo at 80 percent and and I have Rory Smith at 100 percent, who would you rather have up front? Right. Well, Sterling's not Ronaldo for a start. No, I mean, but it's nil nil. It's uh, excuse yeah. me, but it's it's nil nil. You're, when he came on, you're away, you're away to Estonia. Sterling runs at people and wins you free kicks, and you score goals from from free kicks. Doesn't it make sense to kind of put him on if you think it'll give get you the three points? Oh yeah, it makes I sense. Mean, it makes sense to put him on, but from and on he came on for Jordan yeah. Henderson, who at that point was slightly redundant. It makes sense to put him on for the last you know twenty six minutes or whatever he Which played. What he did? Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying from Sterling's point of view, you know, he should be given credit for saying for going to Hodgson and saying I'm not hundred percent. I'm not going to be able to do myself justice. Give Lalana a go, or give somebody else a go, and and then bring me on, you know, later on if you need but me the, to. But, but the question is there: Would he do the same at Liverpool? And and you know, does he? You know, I mean, it's a fascinating question, mm. would, which we'll never get an honest answer to. Of you know, in his mind, does he equate? A, an England game with a Liverpool game. I mean, that's that's a hard one to know. Would would he have done the same? Does he think it's more important to have played two hours against Middlesbrough yeah. in the cup? I mean, I'm not saying he has much choice in that, but you know, it it just it is that back to that issue of mm. you know why is it the England manager who has to make the comp you know he only gets 45 minutes against San Marino and only gets 20 odd against Estonia now mm. in these instances Hodgson can afford to be pretty relaxed about it but there will be an instance where he, he probably can't afford to be relaxed about it and as he said last night I don't want it to be me that always has to do the compromising I think I think there's something funny going on to be honest I knew this Sterling's energy levels were questioned before and after the Capital One Cup game to Middlesbrough and I agree with Matt it was quite astonishing in fact I watched that game and all I kept saying was why Sterling playing why Sterling playing why Sterling still playing it made no sense at all and after that match that seemed to go on for six weeks because of the longest penalty shootout I've ever watched he has looked like he's suffering from some sort of fatigue issue he's not what he was last season or even at the beginning of this one so there's some sort of toing and froing going on it wouldn't surprise me if if Rogers was was had maybe mismanaged Sterling in that game and is now looking to blame his how he's being played for England he's got two he's got two he's doing too much he's doing too much he's not being managed properly the fact is that he's a 
the reason I'm guessing he ended up playing two hours against Middlesbrough is because Rogers is feeling the heat. You know, he can't trust Balotelli. He can't trust some of these new signings he's brought in, certainly yet. So that's why... But don't, Matt, isn't Ster- it slightly Sterling's, suspicious to play him for Sterling's the whole been, match? Oh, absolutely. But that's why, you know, I'm, I'm, right. you know, we're all sort of second-guessing here. But that's, that's, I'm guessing, why Sterling has been flogged with nine games in, in 31 days. Is because you know Rogers is feeling the heat and doesn't doesn't dare pull him out. But oh, um, it may maybe maybe um, Sterling, and this is pure conjecture. I, I admit this is pure conjecture. But maybe Sterling has been saying for a while now, I'm feeling a bit tired. And initially, yeah, at it, club level, they were saying, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with you." Or maybe I'm, he had I'm diarrhea playing, all night and he couldn't get. Okay, but, so, but who cares? Maybe a diarrhea. He couldn't sleep all night. Who knows? Maybe stayed up to play video games. Like if the dude's tired, he's tired, he doesn't want to play, he doesn't want to play. I, I think you should be happy that Hodgson and Rogers are actually talking to each other and managing this guy, right? We don't even no, know but then Hodgson's, Hodgson's also getting battered for, for for being honest about it. Now, you can argue, you know, he's, he's introduced this into the, uh, the the public debate. And on the one hand, because he has, Sterling's getting grief about, you know, work down the coal mine. On the other hand, Hodgson is probably thinking, well, A, you know, I'm just going to be upfront about it. Maybe that will actually sort of remind people that I'm having to do the compromise in here and 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 put the onus a little back back on Liverpool. And B, if you know, otherwise I'm going to get asked questions about you're such a damn idiot. You don't even pick Sterling in the team. What kind of numpty of an England manager are you? So he's trying to defend himself a bit. Mm. But um, the debate goes on. Just to wrap this up, Wayne Rooney did score his 43rd goal for England. I think uh, ahead of him now are only Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Charlton, and Gary Lineker. And I said them in that order because we all know that Gary Lineker really should be ahead of uh, of Bobby Charlton if somebody hadn't been extraordinarily mean to him a few years ago. This is kind of a big deal. Shouldn't you be celebrating instead of going back to the whole, like, Rooney's rubbish, blah, 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 he's out of control, he's red-faced, you'll end up like Gaza, all those horrible, mean-spirited things that... You guys have been writing about him for years. It just seems you such, specifically, Sam. Such a yeah, me. Spe- I mean, you know, I'm I'm leading the anti Rooney campaign, obviously. But no, I mean, I think it, it just seems such an effort for for Rooney at the moment. His the free kick was was a fantastic free kick. It was it was entirely deliberate. You saw him line it up beforehand, and he executed it perfectly. He saw the goalkeeper on the wrong side of the goal, put the ball in the right place, and um, you know, I think it was a it was a good free kick, but. There's the San Marino game in this game. He could have had probably three or four more goals, and he just seems to be lacking that that little sort of sharpness in front of goal or confidence. Perhaps it's the record that's weighing on his mind. Perhaps it's the captaincy. Perhaps it's a combination of the two. But I mean, the the, the chance he had in in injury time, I think it was yesterday, was just one that you'd expect a, a striker of Rooney's caliber it, to, be, to be taking. You know, Dicko. You know what I find interesting about him is I. I watched this game with, uh, on Sky Italia with Italian commentary, and they were praising Rooney for the way he was running around and helping his teammates and so on. And then I'd flick over to your coverage, and it was like, you know, about him needing to be more disciplined and, you know, chicken with his head cut off and all the usual tripe that people say about him. Um, have we kind of reached a, a, a tipping point where we in the continent value effort more than you guys do. So, I mean, I think we um, actually think he's very good. Well, I think he's, he's. I don't think anyone could doubt that he's taking his responsibilities seriously as a captain. You could actually see him out there, sort of trying to be demonstrative as captain. He's, he's. You know, say mention how young the team is. You can, you can see him thinking. You know, I am going to actively um, try and be a leader out there. The, the problem is with him is just simply he just goes through these phases where I'm not sure I've ever seen a player who's who's as good as Rooney, look as bad as Rooney can 
when he's going through these periods. You know, he just clunky touches. You know, you could almost see his mind going, I'm in poor form, I'm in poor form on, on that that lob that he tried against San Marino, then the one he uh, chance he had at the end of yesterday's game. So I, th- I just, I mean, ultimately, this, this, is, this has all been Rooney for the last X years where, say, it's, it's very rare for a player who can hit the heights that he can to, to look so ordinary when he goes through a slump like this. But um, it's not the first time we've seen it. I had a debate this week. I just want to raise the issue of of biographies, autobiographies, having written one myself. Somebody came out and said that uh, right now, I think it was Ian Herbert, actually, our our friend in The Independent. Did you see this, Dicko? I did get alerted to it, and um, yes, it was a very nice piece. Tell us what he said, Dicko. <laughs> he said that. Um, he made a very interesting point. He sat down with Roddy Doyle and was also at the Keene press conference last week, and one of the fascinating sort of issues that has never been properly disclosed about Keane is the drinking. I mean, he, we've heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. We've heard that it was a sort of a pretty heavy battle in particularly in Keane's early life. But asked about it at the book launch, he basically said, As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Dead well. The great thing about writing this book is I don't have to tell you, you know, I can choose what I tell you, what I don't tell you. I can choose what I put in, what I don't put in. And then Ian also spoke to Roddy Doyle, who said that this book was a rush compared to, you know, he said, you know, I'd normally expect to spend two years on a book and and this was a matter of months. Roddy Doyle, for those who don't know, is the guy who wrote The Commitments, right? Yes. He's he's, he's um, considered to be a serious author. Oh, absolutely. And for him, this was a bit of a rush job. So Ian's just made the point um, and very kindly alluded to my Bobby Moore biography that we've got to remember that for all the the waves caused by a, a, a memoir like Keane's, it is a rush job. It is very partial. It is very incomplete. And that, you know, there are some um, respected biographies out there, which, you know, if you, want to, if you want to get the full story, if you want to get something more in-depth, and if you want to get something that's certainly a lot more rounded and 360, you have to look to biographies and not autobiographies. You know, I mean, I've done ghosted books, and this is why, you know, I did one with Gary Neville, and a couple of few friends said, well, it's really weird, you know, you're sort of not mentioned on the cover, you're not mentioned on the inside page. In fact, you know, page 843, your name is in very small print in the acknowledgements. And I said, well, absolutely, because it's not my book. It's it's Gary Neville's book. You know, there is not a word in there that he didn't approve. There are quite a lot I would have liked to have put in, which he didn't want in. There were chunks that I wanted to stay in, and, and he didn't, and quite right, because that's his book. Just to broaden it out, I, th- I think a fascinating way of discussing this is, is Brian Clough. 
I think The Damned United is a fantastic book. Now, a lot of people in football get very thin-skinned and say, it's an outrage, you know, he, he exaggerates his drinking, he, he, he brings in the bungs. But ultimately, which version is more, t- is more true? Is it that book, which is a novel, but based on the truth, or Clough's own memoir in which he, he says, bungs, that's an outrage, of course I never touched one, which personally... I think is, um, is, is rather hard to believe. So is a novel, in that case, actually closer to the, the truth of Clough well, than his own memoir? I, I might, I mean, dare I say on, on this one, perhaps an investigative book filled with investigative reporting, but dealing with verifiable facts could probably have offered more truth than something you know, loosely based on the truth, like David Peace did, or well, Clough's version well, of offense, right? Well, there's, and there is a middle ground where you've got Jonathan Wilson's written a, uh, you know, a very detailed biography. But that's all nerdy and tactical. I read that. That's as well, kind of what you'd expect from Jonathan. It's very good, but he doesn't get into the bungs excessively well, he talks a bit either. About, he, he basically, he, he is turned to the the bungs inquiry. He's not gone beyond what was in the bungs right. inquiry, but it's... But, know, but, but, but Dick, I guess what I'm driving at is it would have been interesting. Cause, I mean, I, I agree with you with, with this idea that obviously when you write an autobiography, I've ghosted an autobiography as well, you know, you're giving your version of events. But I'm also wondering if in the mid-90s, Clough's status was, so, was, was, was still so high because of what he'd achieved earlier that even though there was a bungs inquiry and whatever, nobody thought to necessarily go and pursue this aggressively in the media or in, or in books. I guess the, 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 the generation of football writers before you, I thought maybe had a different relationship with some of these characters and perhaps were, were less aggressive in, in pursuing certain things. Absolutely, but I th- you know, I'd say that the reaction I've had to the Bobby Moore book, which is, you know, thrilled me, is that people, you know, even West Ham diehards, you know, who I thought might be sort of defensive about Bobby Moore's um, memory, have actually said, you know what, we want to hear all this, you know, it's provided it's not sort of nastily written, then, yeah, actually it makes these guys not just more accessible, but often more admirable to hear what they've been through, what flaws they had, what hurdles they had to overcome, what challenges, you know, the, the, it, the vulnerability is a part of all of us. And, and again, that's I guess the advantage that a, a biography can have is that it can bring all of this to the table. And, and you know, there, I mean, there's a million memoirs, shall we say, skewing, skewing the real um, truth, and that's the kindest way of putting it. Sam, one thing, going back specifically to the Roy Keane thing, is that I found, I mean, Roy Keane was one of my favorite footballers, but in his retirement, I find him less and less likable. When I read this, I find him even less likable now because it seems that, you know, a lot of his things, except for the Ferguson stuff, which was already out there, but a lot of the other battles he picks seems to me pretty low-hanging fruit. Pablo Cunago. Mm-hmm. I read his logic for, for signing uh, the, the Robbie Savage incident, which is, you know, famous because of the stupid message Savage has on his phone. Ha, ha, ha. But I was also thinking, like, so his whole basis for signing Savage is, oh, I thought he could give the boys a lift the way, uh, the, the, the way Andy Cole or Dwight York or some other, like, former teammate of his has. I'm thinking, like, what, well, th- this is your logic? The, mm-hmm. the game where they lose 7-1 is, is, or 7-0 or whatever it was, uh, and they're 4-0 down at halftime, and then he goes for it in the second half, and he just, I mean, it just seems so so weak, so lame. So, like, I, I, I guess what I'm driving at, there isn't a great mind behind this. It just seems so 
predictable. Oh, like yeah. The kind of stuff a very ordinary ex-pro would say. Some of the some of the um, sort of the revelations about his sort of his t- his tactical observations in inverted commas, you know, and, and players that he was using. I mean, that that was quite interesting. And in, in terms of his, you know, the clubs he's been at. I mean, he has it didn't work out from Ipswich. You know, he I think he got Sunderland promoted. He, he obviously wants to highlight that. But yeah, well, sorry, just quite, just on that point though. Yeah. Again, Sunderland, who were actually relegated the year before and who spent more money than God, Jesus, and, and the Holy Spirit put together under now Quinn to go and get back up, right? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's, just, that's the thing. I mean, I, he's, he obviously wants to highlight that and, you know, to, to sort of maybe get some credit in the bank for that because he maybe doesn't feel he's given enough credit from a coaching point of view. But some of the some of the, the sort of points he makes and revelations within there uh, uh, do sort of do sort of paint him as maybe a sort of a, a couple of decades behind tactically as, or uh, like what? I mean you know his his observations about uh, you know using prozone and things like that I mean I think he said he fell asleep when the guys came to came to present to the to the <laughs> exactly. club I mean you know it, it's not the it's not the sort of the I mean I'm going to use Rogers as the example um, as a sort of forward thinking uh, thank you coach for using or, Rogers and not the other one uh, yeah um, <laughs> you filled your quota my lesson there yeah. it's, 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 he's, he seems he, he, he's sort of wary of uh, sort of modern influences and he's, he's quite com- um, comfortable using the, the things he learned when he was a player <laughs> in the early days when he was a player rather than the, the, the use of sort of sports science and technology Maybe I'm being unfair of him, but he seems to sort of shy away with shy away from things like that. There is the, the classic disconnect. I mean, I've read I have read the whole book, and it's there is a disconnect between the book version of Keane, which is actually far softer and more regretful, and actually far kinder to Alex Ferguson among others, and then the Keane that we see at the press conference blasting everyone. The Keane we've seen in some recent interviews to launch the book, and again that sort of throws up the idea of well, you know, how accurate is the book? I suspect Keane doesn't think he's ever going to get appointed as a number one coach at a club because of the way he uses a laptop he knows he's going to be appointed because of the cult of the Roy Keane personality and a book like this perpetuates the idea that he's a special character I mean the fact that this is his second book and he's what is he now he's assistant manager at Villa assistant manager with the Republic I mean he's not you know if you if you were to just take the bare facts why would why is anyone interested in in in, in a book of a man of that statue it's because of what he was as a player and of the he has this mesmerizing personality and I don't think he comes over as particularly angry at press conferences or book launches he just comes over as different as though he's containing some some sort of strange passion and it may have something to do with the booze it may have something to do with his upbringing or whatever but there, there is something uh, mesmerizing about him and I think he knows that if someone's going to take a punt on him for a, another big job it's going to be because they think Roy Keane's special without having evidence of how he treats Prozone as as what they put before the board as why they should appoint him. Dicko, Rio Ferdinand also came out with a book I believe it's his uh, it's his third biography uh, or autobiography, I should say. You get the sense people say, "Oh, the players are doing it for money." I, I, I'm just wondering your sense on this because, you know, what? Most of these guys, I've made so much money, and we both know the sides of advances that you get. It's really not something you really do for money, is it? Well, it's partly for money. I mean, these guys. Yeah, I mean, still. But how big an advance do you think Roy Keane would have would have received? Oh, hun- I mean, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Okay, um, so let's put a number on what three, four hundred grand. Uh, something of his. I mean, put it this way: Alex Ferguson's book has sold almost a million copies. Um, right. 
So, you know, you do that times... No, 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 no. But you're talking about... So you're going with the outlier, Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm talking about... Well, this it, is, Roy it Keane. is. The biggest one, the biggest... Well, That's fine. Well. Roy Keane isn't Sir Alex Ferguson. So, like, if, 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 if Roy it's, Keane it's, even it's, got it's, half a million pounds, right? Let's say. Well, that was say, what? There was, was two months' wages when, when he was playing? It, well, it's two things. I mean, it's... Look, the, the, the money is not inconsiderable, but also I think the biggest reason, I think, is control. I think these guys get written about all the time. They get talked about. And... They convince themselves, with some justification in some cases, less than others, that they're being sort of stereotyped, they're being characterized in certain ways, and they see a book as a chance to, to get it out, to get out there, you know, as a PR job in many ways. And again, this takes us back to the original argument of what can we trust? Can we trust an a, a, a autobiography more than a biography? They see this as a chance to have their say, to get it out there unchallenged, and you know this is their side of the story, and and so yeah, there is. The, the, I think money plays a small part, but the big yeah. motivation is just this idea that they can speak without sort of pour it out to a ghost. That, that ghost has to write up the version that they want. Right. Uh, any other business before we get into quick hits, Alison? Yeah, this is. Um, I'm just really genuinely interested in in what you chaps think about this as a sort of philosophical and ethical issue are we in the moral maze yeah it's the moral maze i watched a youth football match yesterday refereed by an official i've seen many times he's Grand excellent Paul. he's excellent you know he's a young referee he's Not very Grand very Paul. good no, he's a young okay. youth referee Grand Paul's very youthful <sighs> anyway it was one of those matches it was a cup game pitting a a premier league team against an elite team so there, there was a league difference so one team was expecting to win they they conceded two early goals and they got quite frustrated about this and um, started committing a se- sequence of fouls. Some were a little on the nasty side. Most of them were just niggly pull, pulling of shorts, pulling of shirts. What it meant was throughout the first half, all the free kicks went to the lower division side and the, they had brought a lot of uh, fans with them and they were getting increasingly crossed. Every decision seemed to be going against them, although they were all accurate decisions. And... It, it, there was this sort of groundswell of, of, of indignation, and the pl- the players were getting increasingly niggly with their tackles. One, you know, they're getting just, just a tiny bit more dangerous each time. So I wondered if I'd, I wouldn't dream of asking him this; it would be insulting. But I got the, the impression that the first time he could possibly award a free kick to the superior, supposedly superior team, he would, and he did, and it happened right in front of the fans. It clearly really wasn't you know it clearly wasn't a a free kick but you know the guy rolled around there were screams and I felt even though it was not the team I was supporting I felt the referee did the right thing even if he genuinely felt I don't think this is a free kick I think he did the right thing to give the free kick because the week before a match had been abandoned because of the amount of pressure being put on a different referee who couldn't handle it this is we're talking youth football here we're talking amateurs who couldn't handle it and abandoned the match because he said the, the, the abuse he was getting from the parents and the coaching staff and the young men involved who were all 15 years old was too much and he abandoned the game. And this was nowhere near that bad, but it was threatening to become that way. Please tell me what you think. Even even in the Premier League, there's a certain there's a certain amount of referees evening things out, you know, even subconsciously, whether they 
you know whether they like it or not you know they they've sent a player off and it's maybe been a bit borderline the crowd are getting on their backs and then they give a free kick for the other team and then there's this ironic cheer you know i think even at even at that level you get referees trying to even things out they won't they won't as you say they won't ever admit it but they do you but can this see isn't it. he wasn't evening things out i mean as i understood the story he was doing it because the fans were getting on his back it was but almost to prevent to another abandonment yeah. Yeah. yeah okay evening things out is a few things out steps, if you know you make a mistake one way then you may steps, have a makeup time. well i think yeah, it's a few steps yeah, it's, it's slightly different, but I think referees do do that even in, even at professional level. I, I've seen and I've played in youth football and I've seen youth football matches. When you are a referee, you are at that level. You are on your own out there. There's two touchlines of parents and fans and whatever. You are under a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny. And if that is a way that you can kind of quell the tension growing in a game, if that's the way you can manage them, because you are a manager of the game, I suppose. Yeah. At the same time. I would never turn around to a reference and say you shouldn't do that. I will turn around and say you shouldn't do that. You're there to apply the rules. You're not there to manage a situation. And if the, if you really are concerned that parents are going to come on the field and attack you and the game has to be abandoned, that's their problem. This is how we give in. We need to have a little bit of moral clarity about certain issues. Dicko? Well, I've, uh, I've sort of feel for um, anyone involved in that because I've you know watched my share of kids' football and my, my kids are a bit younger than that, but I can already feel the tension sort of ratchets up with each year that you know the kids get older. Um, mine are nine and eleven, but already say I can sense that um, yes, that there's that that air of menace sometimes from the sidelines and um, I, I can't stand it I mean my advice on this would be to ban parents from shouting anything from the touchline right. in all kids football um, I, I, that, but, but sure, but sure I'm, Dicko, I'm, Dicko, I'm serious about that I think that's that a much be. better solution than what this guy did yeah, no, which is to make up uh, uh, to make up a call so well, that I the just, fans I would stop having I think a go. All I'm saying is I have sympathy for anyone who put in that predicament in the first place well, because cause I've been there and I've heard it and it and it drives me potty. And I say my my solution is actually just to sort of avoid individual sort of discussions and debates like this and just to say all parents should be banned from shouting anything on the side of a pitch during a kid's football match. Time now for some quick hits. For those who do not know, we've had issues of ill discipline, uh, mostly due to Allison. So now, after 20 seconds of your answer, you will hear this sound. And if you make it to 25 seconds, you will hear this sound. And you will stop talking. Right, referring to last week's handbags with Jose Mourinho, Arsene Wenger says, I always regret any signs of violence, and I apologize, but that's part of games where everything is manic. See? Arsene Wenger saying he's sorry. Sam, does this make him the bigger man compared to your god, Mourinho? No. Um, of course not. Uh, he's Wenger. The trouble with Wenger is he, despite being 60, how old is he, 62, 63, he still hasn't grown up and he still allows himself to be provoked by Mourinho. He, he, needs, to look, well, he needs to learn to not let him get under his skin, basically. But at least he apologized, which is good. George Mendes says Cristiano Ronaldo is the greatest player who ever lived and it's worth 1 billion euros. Are uh, you buying either assertion, Dicko? 
Uh, I'm not. I have a personal, and it's you know, this all comes down to taste. But Messi and Maradona um, are um, still a notch above. And at the age of what is he now, 29? I don't think you were going to be getting that sort of money. Um, so I'm, yes, poor old uh, Jorge is going to have to work off five um, percent of a little less than that. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I think he said that would be the, the the buyout clause or something. Actually, say that he was going to be sold for a billion. But anyway, uh, Robbie Keane's hat trick against Gibraltar means he has now scored sixty-five international goals for the Republic of Ireland. Only thirteen men in the history of the universe have scored more. Alison, um, why did he achieve far more at international level than he did with his club? You're only saying that because he didn't score any goals for Inter, and that's your sole point of reference. He's actually been quite prolific at club level. Actually, no, because as you can read in my fine Wall Street Journal column, and I can say that because uh, they are our cousins, uh, only three times in his career did he score more than 15 league goals before moving to the LA Galaxy. So there. What? That's not true. That is so true. <laughs> it's a false start. He scored, he scored current, uh, he's currently scored 53 goals in 83 appearances for LA, LA Galaxy. That's quite nice. I said before moving to the LA Galaxy when he was in European It's about football. proportions, isn't it? I mean, he scored 82 goals for Spurs. That's not terrible. Okay, I'm talking 24 about... 24 for Wolves. What's bad about that? In 73 appearances. That's a reasonable result. He's not been rubbish okay. for clubs. I, but know, I didn't player, say he's rubbish. If he scores one and two for uh, for Republic of Ireland, who are not exactly Brazil and don't score a bazillion goals, and he scores one in three or worse at club level, then he's done better with at international level than at club level, which is curious. That's all I was asking. Okay, maybe. But he's. I think he is a player. I partly agree with you for making the point because he's Thank a player you. who does put. You know, he plays his heart on his sleeve. He, he evidently needs to be happy. And with his family, and I think he's very, very comfortable. One of the few players who's very comfortable playing for his country. We always hear about how English players don't like going abroad. Well, there's a 30-year-old English defender who was a bona fide starter in the Premier League last season on a team who did not get relegated. And, yeah, he did go abroad. In fact, George Calkin wrote a piece about him today. Sam, I know you know who he is. He's Liam Ridgewell, but... 30 years old. That's impressive to be celebrated, right? Yeah, no, great. Well done him. Um, and he gets to celebrate Christmas with his family, which he's looking forward to, I think. But um, I don't I don't think it's going to provoke a sea change, you know, in English football's mentality because, you know, English players have been going abroad sort of in, in ones and twos for for many decades. And it's not it, that's not had that effect. So. Chet Evans, who was convicted of rape, has served his sentence and is looking to make a return with Sheffield United. Now, Matthew Syed wrote uh, in the game today that he ought to be given a second chance. This is obviously a very sensitive subject. Uh, if you sign up to, if you sign one change.org petition once, then you get bombarded with millions of others. And there's that. There's other position, uh, petitions going around saying that um, this should be off the table. Dico, where do you stand? 20 seconds on this one. Wow. Yeah, you get the easy one. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Um, look, I understand Matthew's piece entirely. Second chances, people do their time. At the same time, let's just think of the victim here. She wasn't only um, subjected to this, but had her identity revealed. Various people have been prosecuted for that, I think, including one of Chet Evans' um, family. So, you know, wow. Um, 20 seconds, really. Um, you know, I. The principle Matthew argues for is correct. These particular circumstances of this still make me squeamish as hell. 
Gary Jacobs is now reporting that Tottenham Hotspur and West Ham United could share the Olympic Stadium while White Hart Lane gets its makeover. Karen Brady, of course, uh, said it's not the case, so I guess it comes down to who I should believe, the lovely Karen Brady or the even lovelier Gary Jacob. I love this story. What, what Gary has unveiled is that West Ham is saying... It's our lovely new stadium and Spurs can't go anywhere near it in the first season and then it's all ours. Very possessive, very possessive. But once we've used it and brought in lots of fan, extra fans and had all the publicity, then when it's a little bit cracked around the edges, then West Ham, um, then Spurs can come in for a little bit. That would be OK. And that makes that that makes sense. That's fine. But it's, it's kind of it's kind of amusing how possessive they're being about it. OK, Gab, I've got a question for you in your really quite highbrow, complex column today. You say that those suing UEFA over financial fair play are on the wrong side of history. Perhaps you could explain in 20 seconds precisely what you mean. Well, basically, they hired Dupont, who was a lawyer, in the Bosman case in 20, second, 20 years ago. They thought that, you know, there's no way that Bosman would win. But it was a different time. Back then, it was all about freedom of movement and European integration and blah, 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 and free agency. Uh, now the climate's completely different. Even Manchester City, now that they're very close to break even, I don't think they're too fussed about financial fair play. So basically, uh, the, the whole flow is going in the other direction. People like regulation, and there's also a lot of people who've invested in football who say that they would not have invested in football were it not for stuff like financial fair play. Right, that's all we've got time for this week. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes or something called Player FM, Please do so immediately. Many, many, many thanks to my guest today, making his debut, Sam Munnery. Sam, we were kind, right? Yeah, really kind. Especially um, me. Yeah. Alison Rudd, and all the way from the Baltic wonderland that is Tallinn, it's Matt Dickinson. Check out thetimes.co.uk. Now remember, members get exclusive football, rugby, and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription. If you're not a member yet, you can take our one-pound digital trial today. Just search Timesport online. We're all on Twitter. We all love hearing from you. And we, we, we often reply with very long, detailed uh, tweets in response, often multi-part ones. Right, Allison? Especially you. Uh, ooh, I'm told I need to go. So, till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Hi, I'm Tim Montgomery, the presenter of another Times podcast from the opinion pages called Did You Read? It's the perfect weekly snapshot of some of the best writing in the newspaper. Find out more by heading to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and search Did You Read to subscribe on iTunes. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.